Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Good morning, Grantham Church. Thank you for joining us in worship today in person or via live stream. My name is David Flowers, senior pastor here at Grantham. And if you look in your bulletin this morning, you can see that the sermon title is Passing the Test. The description reads this, life is full of trials that test our faith. We live in a broken world and not everything is as God intends. Bad things happen, challenges come, but ultimately God wants to bring good out of our trials and for us to see them as opportunities to deepen our faith in Him. Therefore, I want to encourage us this morning to view our trials as tests that God uses to increase our awareness of His love, His faithfulness and provision, which will then lead us to live into the fullness of life and freedom that Jesus offers us in the gospel. Amen. We would grab your Bible, if you would, and turn to Genesis chapter 22 for our main scripture reading this morning. Genesis chapter 22, beginning with verse 1. And as you find that, would you please stand with me at the reading of the scriptures. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire, for a burnt offering, and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there, and then we will come right back. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the fire and the wood, the boy said, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son, Abraham answered. And they both walked on together. And when they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac, laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. 
Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You've not only withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a, thorns in a, horns in a thicket, so he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham named the place Yahweh Yireh, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called again to Abraham from heaven, this is what the Lord says, because you have obeyed me and have not withheld even your son, your only son. I swear by my own name that I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies. And through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All because you have obeyed me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, help us this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit to understand this inspired text and to apply it to our lives. And all of God's people said, Amen. This is a troubling text, to be sure, especially a cursory reading of it. And I want us to go beyond a cursory reading of that this morning. You see, the ancient Near Eastern context, which the Bible was written in, particularly the Old Testament here in this case, it's important to know it. One of the things that we see in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and still today, is how God meets us where we are. What we understand the world and how it shaped our thinking, our own context. God accommodates himself to us. If God didn't, God couldn't work with us and take us anywhere. But this is the way God works, and we're going to see that here this morning. It's also important to recognize the larger biblical story. That is that there is what we call in the church progressive revelation. At the heart of that, we believe Jesus reveals what God is like, what God has always been like. And we've not always known this, but we know this now because Jesus said so. And this should shape the way we read all of the Scripture. It should require us even to read the Old Testament through a Christocentric, or what I'll call today, a cruciformed reading of the text. That is, not only seeing God through what Jesus has done on the cross, but reading and understanding all of Scripture in this way. And of course, paying attention to the immediate context helps. So let's do that this morning by looking closely at our main Scripture passage, verse by verse, at least through a portion of Genesis chapter 22. Let's look at verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham. God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. 
And look in verse 1 there, there's a lot packed in. Genesis 12, if you flip back to Genesis 12, we see where God first called Abram to leave his land, the land of Ur, a land of pagan idols, to leave his land, his family, his religion. And he shows great faith throughout his life, but he was by no means perfect. This ought to bring us comfort. Ought to bring us comfort all throughout the Scriptures, the kind of people that God uses and meets with and furthers His plan. Think about it with Abram. Abram, who became Abraham, twice claims that his wife, Sarah, is his sister to save his own hide. Almost sort of like prostituting her out just so that he could live. Think about that for a moment. It was Sarah's idea, but he still complies to sleep with her servant, the Egyptian slave, Hagar, because it seems as if either God is taking too long in fulfilling His promise to give them a son in their old age, or maybe they're thinking like pagan idol worshipers would have, and the deities of their day, the gods need our help. Now, how many of you are willing to confess that this morning? You think God needs your help? Well, maybe we can't be too hard on Abram and Sarah. And then later in their old age, Abraham and Sarah give birth to Isaac. This is a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that he would grow his family into a nation. And this is what God is doing. Verse 2, take your son, God said, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much. You can hear, actually, God is saying this in a very tender way. Go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. And we don't know exactly how old Isaac is, likely under the age of 12 to be called a boy. And Mount Moriah is believed to be where the temple in Jerusalem was later built. But at this time, it is in the land of the Canaanites. Now, why is it important for us to know this? It's because child sacrifice, particularly sacrificing your firstborn would have been fairly common at that time. And so it seems at first that Yahweh, who remember at this point in the story, we're still getting to know. Abraham is still getting to know and to discover what is this God like? Maybe he's like the other Canaanite gods after all. Of course, we can't help but wonder how Abraham received this message, and did he hear it correctly? Was this the voice of God? The text certainly reads that way. And then verse 3, the next morning Abraham got up early, he saddled his donkey, took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac, and then he chopped wood for fire for a burnt offering, set out for the place God had told him about. And you may be asking yourself, certainly if you're married and you have children, where is wife? Where is Sarah? Where's mom? Does she know what's going on here? Imagine also what's going through Abraham's mind as he chops wood, unaware that God is testing him. Verse 4, on the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up, saw the place in the distance, stay here with the donkey. He told his servants, the boy and I will travel a little further, but we'll, we'll worship and come right back. Three days to wrestle with what he believes God has said to him. 
Is he lying? Look at verse 5. Is he lying so as to not alarm anyone? He certainly lied before. (laughs) We wouldn't put that past Abraham. Or does Abraham believe deep down that God is not like other pagan deities? Or at least he really wants to believe that, especially in this moment. Put yourself in his shoes. Surely, surely God is not like that. Surely Yahweh would not have me go through with this. Nightmarish act of sacrificing his little boy. Verse 6. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders. Are you getting this picture? Mountain, three days, wood on the shoulders. I'm just saying. As two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, we have the fire and the wood, but where is the sheep? I cannot help but hear one of my sons say that. Folks, this is just gut-wrenching. There's no two ways about it. And I invite us this morning to experience this with Abraham, because until you do, you cannot fully understand what is coming next and what God wants to say and teach Abraham. If you look at verse 8, we might say if it was unclear in verse 5, surely we can see that Abraham in verse 8 sounds like a man that believes it is inconsistent with God's character and contrary to his covenant that he would command and then expect this to play out. But doubts must be there, right? If doubts weren't there, would this be a test? No. So, Abraham, at least somewhere in his mind, thinks maybe Yahweh is like this. Maybe he's like the other gods of the Canaanites. Now, simply listen as I continue to read verses 9 through 12 with this image on the screen. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there, arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand, he took the knife to slay his son. The angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, do not do anything to him. Now I know. Let that sink in. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. My friends, as a a father myself, I can think of no greater test than this. But before we think more deeply about this as a, a test of faith, and the tests that are before us this morning and wherever we are in our season of life, I want to try and help us to see what I believe is really going on here in Genesis 22, that we can also accept this as inspired scripture and why God has stooped so low in this story, even taking on the appearance of a monstrous deity, putting Abraham through a horrific ordeal. Did you notice in the story that Abraham wasn't surprised 
or shocked at God's command. This should be very telling to us. I mean, why would Abraham not eject? A few chapters earlier, Abraham was objecting to what God said was coming for Sodom and Gomorrah. He objected. Why would he not object to this? Again, I submit to you because this is half expected. This is familiar to him. God knows that this is familiar to him, just like he knows the sacrificial system is familiar to people, just like he knows that kings are familiar to people. But you see, even though God doesn't in his perfect will want all these things, God uses these things to speak to us, to meet us, and so that we would graduate in our thinking, progress in our thinking, and move on to embrace what he's really like and what he really wants. Again, as I said, child sacrifice was common. Abraham saw it in Ur and in the land of Canaan. And maybe God would eventually ask him to do that. This is likely his fear, and it's playing out right in front of him. And I believe that God knew the fear that lingered within Abraham. What if God is like these other gods? Remember, Abraham is still getting to know Yahweh, and he is doubting God's character and covenant. As I said, if, it, if he wasn't, it wouldn't be a test. But God doesn't do this because it pleases him to cause Abraham pain or, or ask him to do something horrific because he's some horrific, monstrous sort of deity. He's doing this, and I hope that we can see this morning, to dislodge Abraham from this pagan thinking, and in a way he will never forget and never wonder about ever again. The Lord's strategy is to have him face his fear and overcome it. And some therapists do this, you know, that they call it flooding or implosion therapy, where someone has to face their fear and overcome their fear to conquer it. Therefore, in dramatic fashion, God does something in this test that will no doubt create a, a theological and emotional impact and imprint on Abraham's soul and increase his faith in Yahweh. You see, after this test, Abraham's view of Yahweh will forever be changed, and it will set him free from fallen projections and misconceptions that he has of God. And so listen to what uh, my friend Greg Boyd says about God's strategy in his book, Crucifixion of the warrior God as he comments here on this passage with Abraham and Isaac. Greg says, I submit that as a means of finally freeing Abraham from every remnant of this cursed ancient Near Eastern view of divinity and to convince Abraham that he is a God who would never demand child sacrifices, God stooped to temporarily bear Abraham's sinful and culturally conditioned suspicions about his character and to therefore momentarily take on an appearance that seemed to confirm these suspicions. And he did this precisely so he could finally free Abraham from every last vestige of his pagan view of divinity while at the same time discerning the depth of his commitment to him. Do you understand what is happening? Do you understand what this says to us? You see, for Abraham, this is an emotional purging of any lingering remnants of a pagan portrait of God, something he would never forget, nor would his descendants, even though some of them would later revert back to this practice. 
With a story like this, Abraham wouldn't forget. With a story like this, the people wouldn't forget. Yahweh isn't like this. Yahweh doesn't demand this. In fact, he didn't even demand it of his own son. He offered his son. We killed him. It's so important to get this right because if you think that that God is a cosmic child abuser who sends his son to be killed, right, Or, or, or asks us to send our sons to be killed, well, that portrait of God is going to be hard for us to overcome in order to come to him and believe he's a God of love, mercy, and grace. Are you with me? And so this is probably the greatest lesson of all here. It brings about a major paradigm shift, not only in Abraham's understanding about God, this is also a new revelation to humanity, to you and to me, about who God is and what God is like. You could even say through a Christocentric cruciform lens, looking at the cross of Calvary to Mount Moriah, we see exactly what God is doing here because God has always been about stooping down to our level, into our nature, taking on the appearance of a criminal and being, and being killed in a criminal sort of way. This is what God does. Why does he do it? He does it for us, to free us so that we would let it go. And of course, we see God stooping to the same level when the Father, as I said, sends the Son in the likeness of sinful humanity, taking on the appearance of a criminal and dying a criminal's death on the cross so that we might and that he might be the perfect Lamb of God, that we might be saved, that he might take away the sins of the world. And in that, as some of you will recall from a previous Good Friday message, Jesus is the last scapegoat. God no longer requires sacrifice. What did Jesus say? He doesn't desire sacrifice. He desires mercy because he is a God of mercy. And so this test of Abraham, it wasn't just to see if he would obey God and be faithful to to his commands. That's part of it. But it goes much deeper than that, just as it does with us all. More than simply obeying his word and passing the test, God wants to correct our misconceptions of him. You follow me? Away from the God who looks like the gods of our own making, away from the God who we want to hide from in the garden, or the God who might take our loved ones, or the God who is out to get us or bring evil upon us, away from the God who can't be trusted in the dark times. This is what God wants to free us from, just as he did Abraham that day on Mount Moriah. Church, this is how God reconciles us to himself. Adam and Eve fled in their nakedness as we do today because they did not, because of their sin, see God rightly anymore. And it's not just through the cross of Calvary that we see this, but through the cross of Calvary into the rest of the Old Testament, we see this God at work. Amen. Jesus on the cross is the quintessential expression of God's love for you and the world. 
And as you come to this God who looks like Jesus and receive his love and forgiveness over and over again in your life, you will be reconciled. You will be free. And ultimately, this is what it is behind every test that we're facing. Don't miss this. Do we believe that God loves us? And will we trust him to see us through? Because he wants to make himself known, deepen our faith in him through COVID, through pandemic, and through all the crap and the junk in the last two years. Amen? But we got to see him rightly. We we got to have a a Jesus-like God portrait and pursue and pray and worship that God. He wants this for us because it leads to a greater awareness of his love and frees us from our bondage to the hell that lingers in our lives, irregardless if it's something for our, from our, of our own doing, you see, that we have that distortion or something beyond our control. So consider these things when you hear these words from James in his book of wisdom in the New Testament. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow, just like Abraham's faith. So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Verse 12, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And then don't forget, Jesus himself was also tested and shows us what submission to the Father looks like as he prayed in the garden before his arrest. My Father, if this cup can be taken from me, unless I drink it, your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done, Jesus said. Church, look and learn from Jesus who knows your pain today. Jesus submitted to God in his greatest test and believed that he would be vindicated and ultimately raised because with God, death is not the end. The altar on Mount Moriah is not the end. The cross is not the end. Some churches, people be rolling out in the aisles and hooting and hollering by now, but, you know, it's okay. I love this verse from the Apostle Paul. You t- take everything we've heard at this point, bring that into this text. Listen to what he says. This is from the voice translation, Romans 8, verse 28. Paul said, we are confident that God is able to orchestrate everything to work towards something good and beautiful when we love him and accept his invitation to live according to his plan. Folks, this is good news. This is the gospel of God. This is the invitation to believe and to live into this today. And before we close with some questions for reflection and response, I thought it'd be helpful if we watched this short little video from the Bible Project, as I think it'll help us to understand whatever test that we're going through right now and put that into perspective. And maybe, just maybe, you'll hear the Lord speak to you. Let's watch this together. The story of the Bible begins with God creating a beautiful world and then sharing it with all of his creatures. And he appoints Adam and Eve to rule it on his behalf. 
And God gives them access to his wisdom and life, but then tells them that there's one tree they can't eat from because it will lead to death. So they have a choice about how to rule with God. This kind of feels like a test. Well, that's because it is a test. But isn't that kind of cruel for God to test them? Well, not all tests are bad. Let's say there's a king who chooses you to fulfill a royal task because he wants to know if you are trustworthy. Well, I guess that's a test, but really it's an opportunity to do something important and noble. Right, but then let's say there's a rebel who hates the king and you, and he tries to convince you that you would be better off not doing what the king asks. Well, the rebel is setting a trap. Right, so a test could be an opportunity or a trap. And the difference is whether the one testing you has your best interests in mind. I see. And both types of tests appear in the beginning of the Bible. God tells them to eat of the tree of life and not the forbidden tree. Yeah, this is God's test of loyalty. God wants to rule the world with humans as his partners, which means they will need to trust his wisdom over their own. But then a rebel comes and tests them to eat of that other tree. Right, the rebel seizes this opportunity and twists it so he can lead the humans into exile and ultimately death. He turns the test into a trap. But after the humans fail, God promises that one day a human will come who will pass the test and defeat the snake. And as the story moves on, God gives a couple named Abraham and Sarah an opportunity to trust him by leaving their family behind to go to a new land where God will use them to restore his blessing to all people. So this is a test. And at first, things go well. But Abraham quickly fails. He lies to protect himself, and then he and Sarah scheme to get a son their own way by abusing one of their servants. Definitely not passing the test. But God doesn't give up on Abraham. He gives him one final opportunity, a test to prove his loyalty. God asks Abraham to go up onto a hill and offer his son as a sacrifice. I can't imagine a more intense test. And Abraham does it. But in the last moment, God stops him and provides a substitute animal in the place of his son. God then says he will fulfill his promise through Abraham's family because he passed this test. So Abraham passed this test, but he hasn't proven to be a fully trustworthy partner. We're still waiting for someone who can pass the ultimate test. Yeah, and as the family of Abraham grows and becomes a nation, God continues to test them. Like when the Israelites wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They have lots of opportunities to trust in God, to provide water or daily bread. But they instead blame God and even say that he trapped them in the desert to kill them. And so the rest of Israel's story in the Hebrew scriptures is pretty much the same. The Israelites don't trust in God and his promise. They're not loyal. And eventually the whole nation fails. So humans have an amazing opportunity to partner with God, but no one is really qualified. And so all of this brings us forward to Jesus. There's a story where Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights without food or water. Ah, yes, the wilderness. And there he meets a sinister creature who tries to trap him. But Jesus trusts in God's wisdom. And he passes the test. Then later there's a story about Jesus going to pray with some friends and God commissions him to go up to Jerusalem and to give up his life. And so he goes. 
And on the night of his arrest, Jesus took his friends and went to a garden. And he told them to pray because tonight, he said, is the great test. And he prayed to God, please let this test pass from me, but not my desire, rather may your desire be done. In this garden, Jesus shows us what passing the test looks like. He trusted in God's wisdom. He loved others more than himself, and he confronted evil with good. Even though it cost him his life. Right. Jesus offered his own life as a sacrifice to cover for all of the failed tests of his people Israel and of all humanity. Jesus passed the ultimate test on behalf of us all. This is amazing. But that doesn't mean everything is going to be great in our lives. I mean, let's be honest, we're going to face our own tests every day. Right. Jesus said every generation of his followers would have their own tests that will force them to trust God in radical new ways. And these tests can be difficult and often painful. But remember, a test from a good God is an opportunity. This is why James, a leader in the early Jesus movement, said that we should be grateful when we face tests and trials because they offer us a gift. It's an opportunity to surrender to God's wisdom and to become more like Jesus, the one who loved us and who passed the test on our behalf. What trials are you experiencing in this season of your life? Take a moment and think about that. Have you been viewing your challenges as a test, as an opportunity to grow your faith? And lastly, how is the Spirit inviting you this morning to see God differently? The God who looks like Jesus to trust him and to respond in faith to his voice. Let's take a moment and go to God, be honest with him about where we are and surrender to him all that we have and all that we are, that he might meet us at our Mount Moriah today. Lord, we need you. Time and again, you dispelled the false images and distorted portraits of you that we have in our mind. And we just say, Lord, thank you for your patience for your mercy and your grace. Forgive us, Lord, for ways in which we've propped up images of you that do not look like Jesus. Forgive us, O oh Lord, as we have not testified to your goodness and your love and your ability 
to take our pain and our sorrow and the junk in our life and make something beautiful in you. We surrender our hearts to you now, asking, Lord, that you would take our tests and our trials and tribulation. Use it that we might get a glorious vision of who you really are. Trust you and follow you this morning. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.